Today, we are talking about the king of comic books. Yes, Jack Kirby, who would have been 105 years old this week. We have to discuss Jack Kirby, all of his magnificent creations. Thor, Captain America, Iron Man, the Avengers, X-Men, Fantastic Four, the New Gods, the Challengers of the Unknown, the Demon, Commandy, Omac, my personal favorite, Omac. So, so much world building. It blows your mind and we have to discuss it. I share uh, many thoughts and observations on the genius that was and remains and will always be Mr. Jack Kirby. We also time traveled to 1989 where all the chess pieces on the board came together. Yes, a very, very important summer of 1989 where some familiar names were assembled. A, A class along the lines of the rookie class of Magic Johnson and Larry Bird or the, the 2003 rookie class of LeBron James, Carmelo Anthony, Chris Bosh, and Dwayne Wade. What is it? Who is it? Find out as we jump back and look at all your favorite happenings in our Decade Series 1989 along with a rousing discussion of the King of Comics on today's all-new Observations. Hey everybody, this is Rob Liefeld and you are listening to Observations. Welcome to another edition of Observations, where we take this journey together, my journey on the world of pop culture and comic books and how it's all mashed up to dominate the landscape that we currently reside in because comic books are everywhere. They weren't always everywhere and I can tell you from my first-hand perspective and this entire journey of observations is 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 slice by slice feeding you my perspective of how the culture through the very mid 1970s 80s 90s 2000s i mean 2010s and into the now we are a culture dominated by all things comic books and superheroes in a way that i never thought possible and i love sharing it with all of you most of those comic book superheroes that you love and that you enjoy and that you wear on your you know, shirts and your hats. And, and as you go back to school, you'll see them on folders and, and all manner of different school supplies, especially with the younger set. Those were created, imagined, brought to life by one man named Jack Kirby. Jack Kirby, a name we don't say enough and we should say so much more. And today I'm going to give him uh, very much his due as we begin this episode, which is right within the 24-hour time period of when Jack would have been 105. His 105th birthday occurred just a few uh, hours ago. He was nothing short of the biggest titan that ever loomed over this comic book industry. And the reason that's funny to say is because Jack was truly a diminutive man. He was a smaller man and uh, very adorable and a, a man you just wanted to hug a man who was so sweet and kind and generous with his time and his wisdom. I was a beneficiary of that myself. I looked back on something that I wrote commemorating Jack's 100th birthday when he turned 100 back in 2017. And a lot of the times when you are asked to write a foreword for a book or a a magazine or now do these think pieces for uh, websites, 
it's not something that you're, you know, always excited in, in regards because, because it's, it's pressure. It's pressure. You want to make sure you say the exact right, right thing. You want to make sure you, you, you know, nail that subject. You, you, you put it all as eloquently, as powerfully, as meaningfully as you possibly can. And so I had not revisited this in quite some time, this, uh, this missive, uh, this memorial, this memorial that I had written for Jack Kirby. And I remember in the days leading up to it, how nervous I was actually writing it. It took me, uh, many days to, to share this and write this because I just wanted to do Jack. Uh, I wanted to, to, to honor him. I reread it for the first time in five years yesterday. And what I, what I can do here is re read it to you now and give you a little, a little more insight, a little more polish in, in regards to this because Jack doesn't get celebrated enough. Um, his, his literally his, his work spanned so many decades. Again, Jack, created Captain America with a gentleman named Joe Simon that gets um, lost often because Cap was then absorbed into Marvel when Timely became Marvel and all these different, you know, obviously legalities occurred and th- there were comic companies gobbling up other labels and companies. And so Joe Simon and Jack Kirby's Captain America eventually moved front and center into the Marvel Universe, the MCU as you know it now, by the Avengers recovering his body in Avengers 4 and then him him becoming part of the modern restoration of this, the, 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 not a restoration, the restoration of Cap, but the brand new vision of the Marvel Universe as set forth by all the books Stan and Jack were doing together. You got Avengers. You got Fantastic Four number one. You got X-Men number one. What's the common denominator? It was all by Stan and Jack. Who had the harder work to do? Any writer's going to tell you the artist does more work, period. End of story. There, there should be no uh, uh, discussion, debate whatsoever. The artist has to fill from top to bottom and 11 by 17 or generally larger 14 by 18, 14 by 19 page of art. And Jack did so just as well, if not better than anyone is ever going to fill a page, especially when you consider the content on those pages, not just the lines, not just the drawings, but what they formed, what they created, the legends that they became and, and are still becoming in so many cases. Jack did again from Captain America and Bucky and Red Skull and all of his tremendous uh, ac- accomplishments that you've heard of, and there's so many that you haven't. You 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 may not have heard of the Challengers of the Unknown. You 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 may not have heard of of uh, Commandy even some of the stuff that he went on and did later for DC. But today I am going to read to you this tribute I did and hopefully polish it out. And, and I'm reading this to you so that you get focused on Jack Kirby in the way that we all should. Uh, he, he looms over this business and, you know, my wife, as I discussed Jack at length with her yesterday during the course of his birthday, she just said, Oh, it's just, it's, it's just a shame. More people don't know who he is. And I said, yes, that's true. The, the major reason you don't is because both he and his wife died before the year 2000. Jack passed in 1994, Roz a few years later, and they would have been adored by the media and, and, and embraced in the same way, if not more so than Stan. He was as warm and affable and knowledgeable and sweet, and his accomplishments could not ever be diminished. Stan got the benefit of living. I mean, that, that's just really what it comes down to. Stan stayed alive, and by staying alive, he was able to see 
his creations brought to life in glorious manner with modern technology. He saw the, the, the audiences be wowed by all of this. And as a result, he was there to shake the hands, take the bows, um, be on the sets, do the cameos, everything that he deserved that I am 100% certain would have been afforded to Jack because the culture would not have allowed it to not happen to Jack. Just let's be clear. The culture would not have allowed it to not happen to Jack, but Jack was gone. And, and, and so his voice could not be fully represent, fully represented. Uh, 2017 at D23, the big Disney celebration that they hold in Anaheim at the Anaheim Convention Center right across the street from Disneyland, they gave Jack and Stan Lifetime Achievement Awards, you know, simultaneously handed them to both of them, acknowledging them both at the same time. So Disney definitely put forth effort after making things right with the, the Kirby estate and the Kirby family because there were some outstanding issues. But uh, we need to focus on Jack. We need to talk about Jack more. I, I'm going to see what I can share with you from this. Hopefully it makes you know, uh, some sense and, and, and stirs some memories for those of you who love Jack. Maybe shed some light on those of you who don't. Again, this is 2017. I wrote it for comicbook.com. It's called Jack Kirby Tribute, 100 years old. It starts out, Jack Kirby, exclamation point. I don't even know where to begin. Just the thought of writing anything about Jack Kirby sends my mind racing. Words scatter and shatter as you try to form cohesive thoughts that will properly, proper, that will properly honor this man. Let's try this. Let me start here. Jack Kirby is the single most important figure, the greatest singular talent that the comic world has ever experienced. I would add full stop to that. There will never be anyone with the magnitude of his magnificent impact in any medium ever again. We create entire worlds with our pen and paper. Our budgets are limited only by our imaginations. Those are the words of the one and true king of comics spoken to a crowded hall in an L.A. convention center during a comic creators panel that I, Rob Liefeld, was fortunate to participate in. I was seated next to Jack. It was 1990, and I was as intimidated and more in awe than I had ever been at any time before or since. Jack was a diminutive man, which in all honesty is even more impressive given how much impressive given how much creative power and energy was housed within, within his stern but tiny frame. Soft-spoken but confident, his every word had tremendous power and authority befitting the creator of a multitude of universes. Universes, you ask? Yes, universes, plural. A quick reminder of the many works that have exploded from Jack Kirby's pen. The Fantastic Four, the X-Men, Avengers, Captain America, Iron Man, Thor, Silver Surfer, Black Panther, and that's just scratching the glossy surface of his best-known Marvel work. The Marvel Universe is his resume. As far as imagination... As, as far as imagination landscape, no one has as much artistic square footage than the king of comics. Over at DC, he created the acclaimed Fourth World and its family of books, Mr. Miracle, The New Gods, The Forever People, The Demon, Manhunter, Commandy, and my personal favorite Kirby creation, OMAC, The One Man Army Corps. Much later in his story career, he ventured out beyond these fabulous creations towards independent comics outside of DC and Marvel, giving us Captain Victory, Silver Star, Satan Six, Secret City, and Captain Glory. And there were many, and there were so many more heroes and villains that we never experienced, stories and art that had yet to be fulfilled. I was witness to drawers and drawers full of character sheets and pages that were fresh, lush, and beautiful, never to be completed due to his untimely passing in 1994. In short, Jack Kirby's imaginations and designs are among the most original and definitive of any artist that has ever worked in the comic book industry. I always 
I was always particularly drawn to his lesser known works, the Inhumans, the Eternals, and the aforementioned, the Forever People. The costumes, the characters, uh, the costumes and characters contained in the pages of those works had a profound influence on my own desire to write and illustrate comics at a very young age before I broke into the business, and they inspired me long after. I separate into a separate header here, and it says Jack Kirby at the cinema. Have you witnessed the overwhelmingly positive reactions to the trailers and visuals for the upcoming Thor Ragnarok? Because again, as I write this, side note, sidebar, Ragnarok does not come over come out until November. I'm, I'm writing this in August of 2017. Have you read the reactions online to the fabulous look, feel, and vision of this film, Thor Ragnarok? People are completely, completely bowled over by it. Quite simply, they are reacting to the extraordinary and distinct costume designs and world building that defined Jack King Kirby. Chris Hemsworth finally donning his silver helmet or Kate Blanchett in her full Gila regalia represent pure literal visions and applications of Jack's most ambitious costume designs, roaring to spectacular life, modeled in beautiful flesh and blood for all to behold. The color and palette of the film are in line with the pop scheme that accompanied Jack's most popular works. Kudos to Taika Waititi and his production team for both tackling and executing Jack's wonderful costumes and wardrobe like no one has done before. Kudos also to James Gunn, who gave us our first glimpse of the almighty Celestials, albeit briefly in the very first Guardians film. My friends and I shifted in our seats, slapping each other's arms as we watched these signature Kirby creations move onto the screen. Celestials, we screamed. Seriously, people, the freaking Celestials appeared for just a moment, but it was enough for me to lose my mind. If there was ever a group of characters that summoned a more definitive Kirby vibe, I'm not aware of them, and there they were. Here's the bottom line for for so much of what I'm trying to say. We are only now beginning to experience the long-awaited, much-anticipated cinematic expansion of Jack Kirby's visionary style, and there is, no, there is so much more on the way. The upcoming Justice League film is built entirely around the impending threat of Darkseid and his fiery apocalypse and the impending doom it spells for the entire DC cinematic universe. Darkseid was created as an adversary that drove the narrative in all of Jack's fourth world line of comics in 1970. For years, he was strictly contained to just those titles. Then, in the early 80s, Darkseid became the go-to villain, the dominant threat for DC's heavy hitters, and they never looked back. Over time, Darkseid and all of the Kirby Fourth World have come to stand as the premier threat and sinister influence on the DCU. Look no further than the Parademons, Darkseid's stormtroopers sweeping across the apocalyptic landscape that Batman envisions in Batman vs. Superman. Or the role of Steppenwolf, general of Darkseid's armies, playing in the Justice League film to witness the Kirby influence pouring out across your cinemas. Why is this important? Why have I discussed so much of the cinematic influence of Jack Kirby, not yet having arrived at the proper celebration of his staggering body of celebrated comic book work? Because Jack is no longer with us. He is not here in person to promote himself. Jack is not here to do the press circuit and properly shape the narrative of his tremendous influence. These movies are the primary way that society, that our kids, my kids, are digesting these worlds. And by reminding everyone of the magnitude of Jack Kirby's influence, we represent for him and we direct others towards his brilliant comic book catalog. I move down to the king of comics. That's the header for this. What can you say about Jack Kirby's comic book work that has not been said before? He was as prolific as any creator that has ever picked up a pencil. He was as imaginative as the next 10 best creators 
combined. He produced up to three monthly titles a month while never ever compromising the quality of his illustrative efforts. His storytelling and layouts are as good as any you will ever encounter. The blocking and staging of individual panels on any given Jack Kirby page are perfect. He always picks the right shot. His character gestures were as subtle or as powerful as necessary given the mood he depicted or the action he was portraying. No one threw a punch like a a Kirby character. No one made an entrance as impressive as a Kirby character. His women were gorgeous and fierce. Seriously, his females are not nearly as celebrated as they should be, and his men were handsome and strong. His creatures, spectacular. Groot, anyone? Lockjaw? Galactus? Jack had no weakness in his comic book storytelling. He was a master of the form and craft. My advice, no matter where you start, the Fantastic Four or Mr. Miracle or Machine Man, it makes no difference. They each contain his wonderful signature influence and appeal. But take my word, and this is my best advice for you. Consume all, caps, all of it. Each and every comic, every panel he produced carries his unique magic. They are all a joy to experience. My most meaningful encounters with Jack came the summer of 1992, as I was wandering the aisle of the San Diego Comic-Con, his wonderful wife, Roz Kirby, gestured towards me to come over to their table. She brought Jack from out behind the table and walked slowly towards me. He was wearing a full tailored suit, by the way. He extended his hand out and told me he was so proud of me and proud of what me and my friends were doing with Image Comics. I was stunned to near tears by this kind gesture. He told me that he'd been doing that, that he would be doing the same thing if he was in your shoes. I reminded I reminded him that he had done the same thing much earlier with the launch of Pacific Comics and his creator-owned work. He smiled and said, you know what I mean. He continued to tell me what he, what he enjoyed of my work and of the energy that it contained. I was speechless. Roz then asked if I would like to come to the house sometime very soon for a more personal visit. Of course, I accepted immediately and only weeks later. Myself and a group of guys from my studio, including current image publisher and partner Eric Stevenson, drove out for a visit that remains a highlight of my very existence. We arrived at 3 p.m. in the afternoon and left shortly after midnight. The full exchange and details of that visit would fill several chapters of a book. But what I remember most distinctly was that we were seated in the presence of the single most important figure in the history of comic books. The stories he shared, the lessons he imparted, lifted our spirits and inspired us in ways that those of us fortunate to have been there, still discussed to this day. That evening, we poured over his original art, which included so many unpublished sketches, illustrations, and also entire issues of some of his finest work. It was breathtaking. He was and remains absolutely amazing in all that he has achieved. I see his influence in every artist I have ever been impressed by, and I'm not limiting that description to comic book artists. You better believe that the godfathers of modern-day cinema, <laughs> the godfathers of modern-day cinema, carry a major Jack Kirby influence. Look no further than George Lucas in his original Star Wars for generous portions of Jack Kirby's DNA. I've always felt that you aren't, if you aren't implementing Jack Kirby in some way, shape, or form, you are completely missing out on this man's genius. Celebrate the most brilliant of imaginations. The pop culture of 2017, which is when I wrote this, and beyond is one engineered from the blueprints of the ultimate dreamer. We enjoy the fruits of Kirby's visionary talent every day. His his imprimatur is on your television screen. It is on your tablet. It is in the toy aisles. It is on the game consoles. It is in the cinema and the aisles of published work. The marvelization of our times exists because he simply drew it into being. Thank you, Jack Kirby, for your life, 
for your example and for sharing your outstanding creations. Thank you for a lifetime of the very best comic books and characters that continue to amaze, inspire, and astound every one of us. Happy 100th birthday, Jack Kirby, Rob Liefeld. Happy 105th birthday, Jack Kirby. As I read this, I I just see all the things I've left out. When I speak of costume designs, think of how Loki looks. Think of how Captain America looks. Think of the uniform costuming that the Fantastic Four display. Think of Magneto and Scarlet Witch and Quicksilver and Mastermind and the Toad and Blob and Eunice the Untouchable. Each just completely indistinguishable from the other. No, (laughs) sorry. Each completely distinguishable. Completely unique. And that's because of Jack. Look at, again, when you look at the new gods and you look at Orion and you look at Light Ray and you look at Darkseid and you look at Steppenwolf and you look at the vast array of the fourth world characters and Mr. Miracle, what a costume. Big Barda, holy shnikes. All Jack did was keep reinventing himself over and over and over and over and over and over. The guy was a consummate professional if there ever was one. I I didn't mention it in here, but when, of course, I asked, because why wouldn't you? Why don't you ask the most prolific guy ever, the guy that did roughly 60-plus pages every single month? Why? How did you do so much work? And he said, I had to. I I had a family to provide for. Comic book rates at that point were about $30 a page. So Jack doing three pages a day, four pages a day is giving him $120, you know, is giving him, you know, 90 to $120 per day. Back in the day, there were no royalties. It was page rate or bust. When he came back to Marvel after reconciling because he had been gone for five solid years, they gave him tons of cover work. I believe those covers paid better. But he covered the Fantastic Four, the Defenders, the Avengers, Captain America, Thor, Ghost Rider covers. He covered all manner of popular Marvel comic books. He did Marvel 2-in-1 covers. He, I mean, his covers were everywhere. It was great to see. It was, it was amazing to see Jack be so prolific. And on the inside of those books were the works of John Byrne and George Perez. And, and, and so many others. And, and you just marveled at how great they were. John Buscema, Sal Buscema. He, he, he just really just dominated. They, they, they just fed him as many covers as possible, I think, because the Marvel fan had missed Jack Kirby. And they wanted to reward him, and they gave him so many opportunities to draw so many covers. And this was a period, again, where he was super prolific, I didn't mention Machine Man, his 2001 A Space Odyssey adaptation, which Machine Man launched out of. Yes, Jack did an incredible adaptation of a Stanley Kubrick classic as it was coming, you know, shortly after it came out in a Treasury Edition format, which is mind-blowing. If you can grab it in that format, do it. You'll love it. Kirby's the kind of thing that just, you know, around this time I was arriving at Robert Kirkman's studio Back in 2017, he was generously uh, giving me this this amazing painting as a gift. And the first thing I noticed on his coffee table was the Jack Kirby 2001 Space Odyssey Marvel Treasury Edition. Everything stopped. 
all time space stopped. I grabbed it. We plopped down on the couch next to each other and just flipped through it and talked about how amazing it was. On the occasion of his birthday, people started sharing all their, 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 their favorite images. So many of them splash pages. So many of them double splash pages. The guy could rock the double page format like nobody I've ever seen before. Whether it was Black Panther, Mr. Miracle, Devil Dinosaur, Machine Man, OMAC, the New Gods. He, there, was, there was no stopping this guy. It would go splash page, double page splash. And he wasn't cheating. Those splash pages are chock full. The Demon, uh, if I didn't already say the Forever People, Commandy. Amazing, amazing, like widescreen before it became a cool thing to throw around. Because when people said, oh, it's widescreen comics, I'm like, widescreen comics to go, go to Jack Kirby. Like you can't, you can't eliminate him. Just say it's modern widescreen, but it's, it's wide. If it's a widescreen comic book format, the guy that mastered the splash page and the double page splash has to be acknowledged, has to be honored. The costume designs, again, I already said Loki and Ulick and Gila and Baldur the Brave, the Warriors Three, Lady Sif, Thor, all of Asgard. Every amazing, ornate headpiece Odin has ever been shown to wear that is just like, how is that on his head? It's like a city on his face. It's like a city on top of his head. These these Odin headdresses were just crazy. I mean, Galactus. Look at Galactus and then contrast that with Silver Surfer. The most distinct, the most impactful costume designer of all space and time. I can only imagine how fun it is for guys like Andy Park and all of the different MCU, you know, visual artists, illustrators, the people who are in charge of bringing up our, you know, bringing us the cinematic representations of this. I can't believe how excited they are when they get to, uh, again, look at something like Gila and how is that going to look on Kate Blanchett and how closely can we, you know, adhere to Jack's designs. And on Thor Ragnarok, they did. I, I mean, uh, kudos to Taika Waititi, who clearly made it a, a point of reference on Ragnarok to really go as Kirby as any comic has ever, has ever, has literally, and not comic, comic book movie has ever gone. At the premiere of Thor, they had all manner of guards uh, guarding different walkways and passageways, you know, moving around the red carpet, and then through towards the entrance to the to the theater. And they had used, they were like all the costumes from the film, and they were all these giant Jack Kirby, basically galactic knights with their crazy headdresses and tons of circles and heavy banding, all the trademarks of Jack's design elements that he would commonly mix and match on different characters. And they were, they were, you know, holding jagged staffs with multiple, you know, blades jetting out from the sides in the center. And it was Jack Kirby drawings come to life. The same people that were wandering around, wandering around on the Grandmaster's planet and, 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 uh, all, all of that element of the Grandmaster's planet was actually in real life, you know, flesh and blood wandering the red carpet. It was a Jack Kirby orgasm that premiere because before you got seated you wandered through a heavily influenced Jack Kirby landscape and that to me was the 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 beginning and and possibly possibly one of the greatest representations of Jack's art brought to cinematic life uh, 
But again, a casual representation of Captain America is just the same. It looks exactly as powerful. Jack Kirby's costume design, his staging, his storytelling, I, I went over all of this in that uh, tribute in 2017, but I just cannot tell you enough. The guy had to feed his family. If it took four day, four pages a day, six, seven times a day, he was up for it. Jack knew what was, you know, expected of him, of him. And I can't think of a time that people said he didn't exceed it. There was all manner of drama between the sales department, the editor in chief when he went to DC. And it's generally agreed upon in hindsight by the people who are still around, like the Paul Lovitz, uh, who, who are there that all of Jack's fourth world, new gods, forever people, Mr. Miracle stuff was generally bought, mishandled. They, 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 like so many publishers, they didn't give it the time to breathe and they didn't give it time to find an audience because the higher ups wanted the quick, the quickest sale multitudes of the best sellers, which again, back in that day are going to fall somewhere between Superman and Batman, which was the heavy diet of the DC universe. But looking back, every day Jack Kirby's work appreciates. It is finer. It is more revered by so many, by almost everyone I speak to. They can't believe the mo- the, the movement, the power, the grandeur, the majesty. The guy was an exceptional director. I, I We will never know what he would have been like behind a camera. But as far as comic book storytelling storyboards go there was none better elements of his work would be lifted from the greats for their work like John Buscema you know who was maybe a more refined illustrator in terms of being a more realistic illustrator of face and form and figure but when he applied Kirby's dynamics it exploded you saw John Romita Sr. uh following Jack Kirby on the Fantastic Four had to apply those similar dynamics and his work was better and grew for it. You can always tell when people have a Kirby moment when they apply Jack to their work. And it's not just the the drawing. Some people do it on the, the, they they take the full aesthetic. Uh, Defenders 48, 49, 50, my favorite run on that book, Keith Giffen, young Keith Giffen drawing almost identical to Jack Kirby, except with a slightly modern edge to it. It was a little edgier, a little sharper, but it was completely obvious that he was trying to incorporate all of Jack Kirby's stylistic renderings, signature applications that made his style so recognizable. But that was head to toe. It was not just the storytelling and the staging. It was the actual finishing, the finishing on the top. But I can go on. On and on and on. All these different characters. I mean, when you think of Xavier's school, you think of Cyclops, you think of Iceman, Angel, Beast, Marvel Marvel Girl slash Jean Grey, Charles Xavier, then the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants opposing them, Magneto, Toad, Scarlet Witch, Mastermind, Quicksilver, again, Eunice the Untouchable, the Sentinels, Jack. I mean, he just kept building out, kept building out new wings of the Marvel Universe. Some took flight immediately. Some needed some tweaks. The Fantastic Four was perfect from the get-go and never looked back. You got Black Panther, Wakanda. You got the Inhumans, Silver Surfer, Galactus. 
all manner of crazy villains, Mole Man and Come on, I haven't even mentioned Dr. Freaking Doom with whom, again, sitting in the movie theater at nine years old watching Darth Vader board the Rebel ship amidst the mist and the smoke and the big music accompanying him and that kind of low angle. Darth Vader immediately, immediately recalled images of Dr. Doom for me. At that point in 1977, I had probably encountered 15 different different Dr. Doom you know, storylines between the Avengers, the Fantastic Four, the reprints that Marvel was putting out. He was very, very well known to me. Wow, who's this metallic cloaked guy? Darth Vader, super Doctor Doom vibes. But yeah, as we look back, we should never not discuss Jack Kirby. We, We should never not glorify him, give him his due. He provided the roadmap. He built, he, he put all the architecture you know, for the house down, the blueprints. There is no Marvel Universe with Jack without Jack Kirby. There is none. Who's drawn those Avengers and and, and, uh, and Fantastic Four and X-Men issues from these phone conversations or sentences that supposedly he and Stan would share? Who's doing all that work? Who's rubbing up their sleeves? Who's making them all so distinct? Because the X-Men didn't look like the Avengers and the Avengers didn't look like the Fantastic Four and Iron Man didn't look like Thor, didn't look like Cap. That distinction was part of Jack's speciality, part of his incredible, immense talent. His Again, his pages are packed. He poured it on every year I reevaluate. Is, is it the Fantastic Four that's my favorite? Okay, is, 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 is it his Thor run? Okay, no, really, it's the New Gods. It's the Fourth World stuff. I, I have it collected in all manner of editions. They keep putting out new, you know, absolute editions. They, they keep up putting out new hardcovers, new new soft covers. I, I get them all. I can't not buy them. I want them all. I don't want to miss out on any single format. Jack is that important. He is that much of a visionary. Yes, Stan Lee was what I called the hype man. I've got dedicated podcasts on how I believe their relationship worked out, the roles that they played, and how important the role that Stan played because it's important to have someone who is eloquent in speech and someone who knows how to sell the product as much as it is to have the person that makes the product. And uh, you you watch all the different, basically uh, a great automated movie that stars Jeff Bridges called Tucker, A Man in His Dream. It's not enough to just make a great car or make a great appliance. You have to get out there and sell it and connect it to the audience and make sure that they know what you have is so special. Stan was the best salesman for Jack's genius than of all time. Their union together cannot be denied. Clearly, Jack, once separated, never looked back, and I hold all of those other works as in high regard because I actually think his, his art is probably at his most refined, at, at his best, when he is doing all of the fourth world stuff from 1970 to 19... 19- 79, I think Jack's work is the best. The Commandy stuff, the Machine Man stuff, which I just rave over. It's so creative. Machine Man is so ridiculously innovative and creative. I just, again, I'm a huge, you're talking to a huge Jack Kirby acolyte evangelist. So I am beyond sold all the time. If I could sell you as well, then I I will feel better about the fact that Jack's name is out there and we're talking about it. And so that is... My, I just wanted to dwell. I wanted to open this episode and celebrate Jack and celebrate what he had done. And I wanted to read 
my tribute that I wrote on his 100th birthday. I wanted to revisit it. It wasn't nearly as embarrassing or or not as, you know, the application was better than I thought. I wanted Jack to be proud. Again, it wasn't just that one time. Multiple visits back to the house. The phone call early that morning knowing that he had died on the front porch from a heart attack. The funeral. Getting to know the family. I just those I feel like I got to hang out with one of the if not the most important person of the 20th and 21st century I would put him uh, above the Walt Disney's and slightly above the George Lucas's and you're seeing you're seeing the benefits of that right now and I'll just wrap it up but you haven't seen the last of Jack Kirby the high evolutionary who is a uh looks to be the the antagonist the villain the nemesis and the new guardians of the galaxy when he came out in character, the actor adorned as the high evolutionary and threatened and um, walked among the crowds in Hall H at San Diego this last summer before eventually taking the stage and further threatening everyone and having to be removed. It was all part of this great bit. The high evolutionary is a part of, you know, an extension, is an extension of Jack's genius. Uh, you know, there is no high evolutionary uh, w- w- without without everything that came before Jack. It is a symbol. There is no Thanos. You go, but he didn't create those characters. No, but they they bear. They are the natural. Uh, they are the natural uh, extensions of uh, of of Jack's influence. And, and when I say he did not create Thanos, Thanos looked to be very much influenced by. Dark seed, dark side. And I think Jim Starlin would tell you as much. Now, uh, the high evolutionary, I need to differentiate. Thanos, not created by Jack, Jack Kirby. High evolutionary, absolutely created by Jack Kirby. So you're seeing him in the Guardians of the Galaxy, number three. And uh, if, if memory serves, the high evolutionary appeared in Thor. And that is where we first were introduced to him. And then as you see the expansion of Wakanda and um, in in the sequel to Black Panther and we see more of Ant-Man and the Wasp, we are still living in the Jack Kirby world. I I go back to the Black Panther premiere. We we got seated. We had these great seats. We couldn't believe it. Joy and I were so excited. That premiere was so fun. And my wife leans over and said, so, 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 so who created who created Black Panther? I said, we're still in the Jack Kirby Stanley realm, honey. We're not living it anytime soon. There's way too much for them to bring forth. There's way too much. Consider over at the DCU, you haven't met Mark Moonrider. You haven't met Viking the Black. You haven't met Big Bear. You haven't met Light Ray or Orion or Big Barda or Scott Free. I mean, DC has even more Kirby crazy to unleash. And I hope they do. I hope they do soon. Sooner than later. So, Again, happy birthday, all honor, all respect, all praise to Jack the King Kirby. There will never, ever be another. Earlier this year, we examined the decades, our decade series, and we did 1986, and we did 1991, and we did... uh, we did, we did some 1978 disco action. We did 2012. We did the year 2000. Uh... Man, I love that decade series. We're going to kind of venture back into the decades today because as I was kind of flipping through my comics and sorting them and in my long boxes and, you know, I I do want to say a couple things. 
several of you, a couple of my peers, many of you fans, you'd be surprised at the peers. It was multiple, six, seven, reached out and said, Rob, why are you still digging comics so much? I read your, you know, Church of Comic Books and how excited you are. Why are you? What what makes you excited? And, and the, the fact of the matter is making comics. I've said this before in the, in, in, in the last basically 12, 13 months, I've done three different jam comics where different people contribute a page or they ink over me, where it was Neil Adams, whether it was uh, Kevin Eastman, Philip Tan, Wills Portacio, Corey Hampshire, Dan Fraga, Marat Michaels, Dan Panosian on Snake Eyes. I'm sorry I've left out some names. Ed Piscor, Jim Rugg, Tom Scioli. It went, it, it, it just, it was Jerry Ordway. I mean, by reaching out and working with talents that I admire, maybe I don't have room for to do an entire short, an entire story or even a short story, but by interacting and getting, getting these little snippets and then on the Prophet Remastered and the Brigade Remastered, the Brigade Remastered comes out on September 28th, don't miss it, another jam book, which involves uh, the likes of the comics, KFAB guys, Tom Scioli, Ed Piscor, uh, Jim Rugg, also some great Extreme Studios guys, Carl Allstetter, uh, uh, Marat Michaels, Dan Frega, Norm Ratmond, Pencils and Inks, his own page. It's great. We also have guys like Clay Mann, Victor Bogdanovich, V. Ken Marion, some of DC's Marvel's best and brightest guys who work on Batman and Wolverine. Philip Tan, of course, doing the new Last Ronin with Frank Miller. Getting these pages in sparks admiration, excitement, enthusiasm. It inspires me. I love doing comics. I love comics. Why do we love comics? What is it about this podcast that I, if I were to guess, connects us? It's one word. It's an escape. It's that escape. Whether it was sitting in a movie theater and watching Top Gun nine times or going into a Jack Kirby comic book, as I did many times yesterday, I escaped. I escaped into the world of Maverick. I escaped into the world of Devil Dinosaur, of Captain America, of the Avengers, of Fantastic Four, of OMAC, of some of Jack's first issue specials like the Atlas, Manhunter. I have multiple, you know, collections of comics that I love. I'll go into a George Perez universe, a Jim, a Jim Starlin universe, a John Byrne universe, a Frank Miller universe. It is that escape. And we get caught up in it and we escape so often because we love being there. For some of you, the escape is better than the here and the now. For some of us, it's just a distraction to fill up hours in the day, the days that kind of get longer as we get older. But it's to get the juice. It's to get that juice. Whether your situation is troublesome, whether it's fraught, whether it's, you know, your cup runneth over, there's a place for an escape. There's a place for inspiration. That is what inspires and, 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 and unites us is our escape into these comic books, into these different worlds, these different styles. It's, it's again, the matrix and escape star Wars and escape. And I, I mean, that is what fuels me. That is what inspires me and moves me through to the next moment to moment to moment. The decades that crept up on me that we didn't discuss that we're going to scratch on today is the year of 1989. Why 1989? What is so spectacular about 1989? I'll tell you right off the bat what the number one movies of 1989 are. And in 1989 was a baller year from, from head to toe. 
one of my favorite summers of all time. And, and again, as the guy that had the job drawing the comic books and I didn't have to be anywhere nine to five, I could adjust my schedule. I can tell you, and again, this is before all of you youngsters who perhaps are listening to this or are hearing it on, on, in the car with your, with your pops or your mom or at the comic store that's playing it. I was the guy, this is, this is before reserve seating. There's no reserve seating, much less recliner seats. 1989, if you wanted to get good seats, especially for your nine, your 10, your 12 friends and men, you, you would say, please just try and get there by, by six for the eight o'clock or, or try and get there by five 30 for the seven 30. Like don't leave me hanging all day long, but I was always proud to bring my beach chair. I was always either one, two or three in any line. And that includes these top three Batman. Yes. The Batman 1989 Prince Jack Nicholson, Michael Keaton, Kim Basinger. Again, didn't love the film, but loved how it got people excited for comic books. Because if you were excited for Batman, you were turning your attention to comic books. And the Legends of the Dark Knight comic book that I've covered on on here many times with the multi-different cardstock covers that were just different colors. There was one standard piece of art and the comic book that DC put out to coincide with this launch had a green cover, purple cover, yellow cover, orange cover, blue cover, eventually so many covers with all the reprints, but it was just a cardstock cover with the logo on it. There was no new art. That is what inspired Marvel to go into that same breach the, the following summer with Todd with his four different editions, standard, polybagged, platinum, silver ink, um, and, and created the modern blockbuster all starts with Legends of the Dark Knight because Marvel looked over and said, wait, are you telling me that people are showing up to buy all the orange, the purple, the green, the blue, the red? I mean, yes. Yes, they were. They absolutely were. I was. And I'm like, why am I getting excited over a green cardstock? There was no new art on it. It was the same art underneath all of them. Ask your retailer if he was around during then. I do wonder what my good buddy Bruce Conklin, he of the 1985 Comics Interview magazine would have said about that epic release of Legend of the Dark Knight with all of its multicolored cover stocks that 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 you look down, you saw them on your shelf, and you're like, well, I, I, I kind of like the purple, but I think I'll buy the red and the orange and the blue and the yellow too. I mean, it was crazy. But Batman, I stood in line, got us good seats, saw the Thursday night preview. Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, possibly my favorite movie of the entire summer of 1989. Lethal Weapon 2, one of the best sequels to any franchise. So great. The introduction of Joe Pesci was exactly what that um, that franchise needed. The, the, the drive-through line is one for the ages. Honey, I Shrunk the Kids is a crowd pleaser. It's great. Just an amazing and super fun year of great, 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 great films. I didn't love Ghostbusters 2, but I'm glad I saw it. Okay? Glad I saw it. Parenthood came late that summer. Terrific family drama, Dead Poets Society. When Harry met Sally, my wife and I, our, our favorite kind of romantic comedy of all time. We watch it once a year because everyone thought in our lives that we were Harry and Sally and it was only a matter of time till we got together. And we did. Woo! Awesome. So 1989, great movie. Great time for cinema. Batman broke through. One of my favorite, if not tied with Raiders, I, I love Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade that much. I, I must 
you know, disagree with Mr. Quentin Tarantino, who was semi throwing it uh, down a flight of stairs a few weeks ago. But, you know, to each his own, to each his own. These were great movies, fun time at the cinema. You may ask, well, in 1989, what was, you know, what was rocking on the billboard charts? I'll tell you. It was Guns N' Roses. Okay, it was Bobby Brown. It was Appetite for Destruction. It was Don't Be Cruel. And shockingly, it was Debbie Gibson with her follow-up and The Electric Youth. And if you're like, Rob, you're crazy. No, Madonna, Like a Prayer, six weeks at number one, okay? Fine Young Cannibals. I think Jim Valentino, I shared a studio with him during this time. He got so tired of hearing, you know, the raw and the cooked Fine Young Cannibals album. I played it nonstop. He was like, I'm going outside if you're going to play this. <laughs> you got Tone Loke, a funky cold Medina. Bam, 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 out. Oh my gosh. Appetite for Destruction. Uh, Bobby Brown was six weeks at number one. Good God. Uh, fun time for music. The Batman soundtrack, six, six weeks at number one. And of course, I think we all will cling to our Millie Vanilli memories of Rob and Fab with Girl, you know it's, yes, you know it's true. So, Oh my gosh, Millie Vanilli. Summer 89 was rocking, but you know what? What was going on in comics in 1989 sets the table for everything. Because I was like, wow, this one period, this one month, this is insane what happened. I'm going to take you through a couple months. So let's revisit one of the greatest draft classes of all time, okay? You got to go with the 1979, 1980 draft which had Magic Johnson and Larry Bird, okay, right? That was that was fantastic. Then, of course, in modern times, the 2003 NBA draft, which got us, which brought us LeBron James, Carmelo Anthony, Chris Bosh, and, uh, and Dwayne Wade. That's your one, three, four, five. Marco, I forget what Marco's name was, but there was a guy named Marco in there that took number two that everyone was like, what are you doing? But LeBron... Dwayne Wade, Carmelo Anthony, Chris Bosh are your top five. Huge impact on the sport. Amazing basketball feats, talents, championships, you know, endorsements. These guys became mega, mega stars. But you have to get drafted first. And in 2003, they did. And when they stormed the courts, they never looked back. And these guys, obviously, Bosh, LeBron, and Wade teaming up to make the Miami Heat or the Heatles, as they were called. Was a, was a big, giant pop culture moment that, that went beyond just the basketball and the hardwood. Okay, I mean, it was, it was big. It was a big deal. In May 1989, if I could tell you that Todd McFarlane was doing issues of Spider-Man. I had just done the Spider-Man annual. Jim Lee had his very first fill-in on Uncanny X-Men with number 248, and I was doing covers on Wolverine Saga. It was starting to come together, the draft class. 1989 was when all the pieces on the chessboard started to move together between Jim Salakrup, the editor of the Spider-Man group, and Bob Harris, the editor of the X-Men. Moving in, Jim, moving in myself, eventually Wolf's Protasio. But in 1989, you get month in, month out. You're getting McFarlane, you're getting Liefeld, you're getting Lee. We would go on to be the one, two, three best-selling comics of all time. No looking back. And form the core that is this 30th anniversary of Image. But it all started in the summer of 1989, the spring of 1989, because again, in June of 1989, you've got Todd rocking Spider-Man. I'm doing the New Mutants annual. 
the New Mutants Annual with the Atlantis Attacks came out June 13th. Todd's Amazing, Amazing Spider-Man came out June 20th. Jim Lee is cleaning up and getting ready to take over on the X-Men, but he is uh, just doing outstanding work on Punisher War Journal. Everyone is moving into place. By the end of that year, by November, by November of 1989, Todd is saying goodbye. He's saying goodbye to Spider-Man, waving goodbye. My first entrance into the New Mutants is happening, and Jim is in the midst of his three-part Psylocke saga, his first three-parter. The next month in December, Eric Larson immediately steps into Amazing Spider-Man as Todd starts to prepare to draw for the Spider-Man release that'll come in June, you know, six months later. And 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 Jim gets securely on board shortly after this three three issue series, and I am on the New Mutants for the next fifteen months. New Mutants, Spider-Man, Spider-Man for Eric, Spider-Man for Todd. X-Men for Jim shortly after X-Factor for Wills. New Mutants for me turns into X-Force. 1989 is a decade worth a second look. I've got X-Factor covers where Todd's inking me. I've got New Mutants covers. I've got Wolverine Saga covers. I've got back covers of Wolverine on Hulk. Jim's got the X-Men. He's got the Punisher War Journal. Todd's got Amazing. Then Adjectiveless Spider-Man. Eric moves into Amazing Spider-Man. And then Adjectiveless Spider-Man following Todd twice. Guardians of the Galaxy is out, and there's no looking back. Mark transitions from X-Men to Wolverine. All the pieces are in place. It happens in the summer of 1989, the spring of 1990. I mean, for one single month, Jim is doing the X-Men. I am on the New Mutants Annual, and Todd is on Spider-Man. Your pieces are in place. Your draft class, Marvel's draft class of 1989 they didn't we weren't rookies all at the same time of course Todd again has been in the industry since 83 or 84 by that time but he's feeling his way he's finding his voice he's passed the Infinity Inc the G.I. Joe the new universe work that he did the Hulk even the seminal Hulk stuff and he has found his voice he's found his voice on Amazing Spider-Man Jim has found his voice on X-Men after refining his work on Punisher I have found my voice on New Mutants after doing Hawk and Dove, and then doing some X-Men fill-in books, X-Factor, X-Men, these annuals. Eric's position is, 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 has moved off Punisher, which he was doing, with Scott Williams and him, no less, which looks fantastic, by the way. I, I have some of those original pages. Boom, to Spider-Man, where Eric just shines like never before. I've told you, my, my, my admiration for his Spider-Man run is, is, is tremendous. I, his Spider-Man moves. Summer, spring, 1989, as DC is blowing it up at the cinema with Batman, Marvel is shifting, shifting. Now, again, I can tell you that in 1982, you can pick up a comic at Marvel, and it's got John Byrne, it's got Frank Miller, it's got Walt Simonson. Those pieces were in place. Electra, Beta Ray Bill, John Byrne's epic Fantastic Four run, his epic Captain America run, his epic... Uh, X-Men run. In, in 1979, you could grab a comic book at Marvel. 1980, you could grab a comic book that had Frank Miller drawing Daredevil, John Byrne drawing the X-Men, George Perez drawing the Avengers. 
the pieces in each generation. Each generation has a definitive class. Now, I got to be honest. I don't know who the 2000s class is. I'm not going to lie to you. Every time I think I know, uh, I would have told you uh, middle of 2000, Ivan Rice, who is as talented as an illustrator as there ever possibly would, while he was drawing Green Lantern with Jeff Johns, I felt like this is the new, maybe top guy in the business. Then I don't really know I was following Green Lantern. I followed Blackest Night. I don't know where he ended up again. I know he came back around to do some of the most recent of the Superman relaunches. I'm not sure that was what that was the best fit. And that gets into career management. And the one thing I can tell you about Jim and Todd and Rob and Eric that I can tell you about John and George and Frank and Jim Starlin and Walt Simonson is they manage their careers exceptionally. Longevity is the key. We are in the longevity between my death stroke issues, my Hawk and Dove issues, my infinite issues, my Hawkman issues at DC Comics, my Deadpool core run, my De- Deadpool bad blood, my major X, my snake eyes dead game, my X-Force kill shot and whatever I'm missing. I have put together 1100 pages in nine years. Thousand pages, I mean 1100, 1200 is, 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 is not out of the question but I'm trying to give you 100 pages a year to stay relevant, to stay in the game, to be worthy of the the career that you gave me by showing up and being excited. And when I look back in those listings in 1989 and I see my New Mutants 86 and I see Jim's Psylocke saga and I see the bi-weekly Amazing Spider-Mans, I'm just freaking out. Of course, on those bi-weekly Spider-Mans, Eric Larson jumped in as well and helped out that killer, you know, saber tooth issue. It's got the Todd cover and then Eric did the interiors. We earned your favor because you showed us, you chose us, you gave us your dollars. You bought multiple copies, not a, not a variance, but you would buy one or two copies. I know I was there. I've talked to you uh, at length. I mean, the one thing I haven't discussed it very much, but in the summer of 1991, into the fall of 1991, Jim Lee put on his own comic conventions. I think he did two of them. He may have done three, but he did two. He moved cities, and he ran the show. He wanted to put on the own show. I, I was a surprise guest at the San Diego one, but he had, you know, Mark and Scott and Wills and all the boys, and uh, he he was flexing his entrepreneurial spirit by putting on comic conventions. That only happens, and that only works if you know that the people are going to show up. I remember entering into that, you know, comic convention at at the arena in San Diego. I think it was the same place I saw Hugh Jackman do his, you know, greatest showman tour. I, I, I was walking by all of the crowded people outside and I signed all day once I was inside. This was a few months before Youngblood came out, a few months before, before Youngblood Image Comics launched. But Jim had taken his entrepreneurial spirit and turned it into an X-Men, uh, made X-Men conventions and people showed up and they showed up big. And that's because you guys dug what we were doing. You, you, you enjoyed what we were doing. Every store appearance I was going to back in the day, there was more and more and more. I'm just speaking of my personal experience. The rookie, the, the, the rookie classes, the classes at, at Marvel were so clear to me. Again, Frank Miller, Walt Simonson, John Byrne, George Perez, Jim Starlin. This class, this Todd, Rob, Jim, you know, Mark, Eric, Wills, Valentino. It's so clear to me because of what we accomplished together. Since then, it's blurry to me. 
the writers don't band together the way the artists did. And, and, and while I see different kind of communes within the different factions, it's not, it's not, it's nowhere near the same. I don't know what the future holds, but I can tell you that as far as the movies and the music, and we will round, I mean, this, this, this really was a, a constant. I feel like the top 10 shows of 1989 are, uh, are, are constantly, I, I feel like they're, they're, um, I feel like they're very much, uh, kind of were the same for years and years and years. But, but as long as we're doing music with Guns N' Roses and Bobby Brown and Madonna, like a prayer and, and Millie Vanilli in 1989, the, the top 10 TV shows, the Cosby show, Roseanne. I mean, those two, those two people are both canceled, but now, by the way, I mean, literally Bill, Bill Cosby, uh, Canceled, Roseanne. Canceled. You've got Cheers, number three. A Different World, the Cosby Show spinoff, which was very popular. Average 20 million viewers. That popular. Just under Cosby Show's 21.2 million. America's Funniest Home Videos. The Golden Girls, number six. 60 Minutes, number seven. The Wonder Years, number eight. Empty Nest. A baffling NBC show. And, of course, Monday Night Football at number 10. NBC dominated. I mean, with 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 the top, you got and basically an NBC show was uh, NBC had the one, the three, the four, and the six spot, and ABC had the two and the five. CBS doesn't even show up till seven at sixty minutes. Nineteen eighty nine was a year of change as much as any other, and to see all the covers that Todd and I were doing together, whether whether it was X Factor fifty, whether it was New Mutants ninety eight. I mean, I'm sorry, New Mutants 86, New Mutants 85. Um, you know, that year, shortly that later that year, I did a Marvel Comics Presents and Jim Lee would ink uh, a page of mine in that Marvel Comics Presents. Later on, I would ink a page of his. There's an entire dedicated Rob Observations episode on the jamming together of, of, of artists and how jam, you know, jamming together and, and when two artists find, um, you know, they 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 find a different style within each other. When Neil Adams inked Bernie Wrightson, or when Bernie Wrightson inked Neil Adams, it, it it made for a cool ooh look at you know look at look at the stylistic you know twerks tweaks tweaks of both of them coming together. That's why I love doing the the Snake Eyes, where different talents inked me, and I didn't care what they did. I was so excited. I was so I, I was co- so confident what I put down beneath in terms of the cropping, the image, the gesture. It didn't matter what the the coating on top was, and it was so fun to watch. Whether it was Kevin Eastman, Jerry Ordway, Philip Tan, Wills Portacio, Dan Frega, all of the aforementioned names. But 1989, we jammed. We jammed a lot. Eric Larson inked me. You know, eventually, not just that year, but this is when we all started jamming together. We kind of knew that we were a class, a class of all stars. Absolutely, I think I can get away with saying all stars that would change the grain. You know, in the early 2000s, I will tell you, it was kind of the arrival of these fine artists, the cover guys, the Adam Hughes, um, and and kind of his class of guys that did only covers: Supergirl, Wonder Woman. You know, Batgirl, Batwoman, maybe it was just Batgirl. And and they just stirred so much excitement, but it was short. It, it, it didn't have, that fan base didn't have the same, 
enthusiasm because it's the stories we tell you that get you excited. It's the stories. It's the journeys that we take on. It has to go beyond a cover. And both Marvel and DC were ruthlessly knocking each other out with events. Uh, you know, Final Crisis, Civil War, House of M. And, and that would take the attention uh, away from just the guys doing the pretty covers. And, and so, you know, 2005 and 2006, 2004, these, these were these refined cover artists. And they're talented. These are beautiful covers, by the way. These are incredibly illustrated single image pieces. But these are comic books and we want to go on adventures. And it's the adventures that everyone takes us on. Maybe it's Mark Miller and Robert Kirkman. Maybe it's those two guys. They've had so much success between Walking Dead, Invincible. Uh, Robert had the exorcism show that is failing to come to my uh, memory right now that had a couple seasons on Showtime. Mark Miller with Kick-Ass, with Wanted, with all the different um, all the different pieces that he's been putting together. Uh, clearly a comic book darling and media darling, both of them. But I guess they are, they are, to me, the biggest successes of the 2000s. But 1989, a decade that we, it was at least worth looking under the hood to see that that is when this draft class, that is when these draft, these pieces on the board um, really started reaping all the rewards that they would for Marvel, for pop culture, for comic books, and made really strong connections. And we uh, were fortunate that you gave us the separation that 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 you did and it and it led us towards this 30th anniversary of image comics which was really the culmination the explosion of all of that goodwill and all that energy so 1989 great year for films great year for music fun year for tv killer year for comics a year not to be underestimated in regards to the influence that it would put forth Long time listeners of the show will know that it is at the end of every episode that we read these generous, ridiculously generous uh, reviews that you guys leave for the show. And lately, uh, let me be honest, you guys are on fire. Thank you for the word of mouth. Thanks for spreading the word. I'm hearing more and more about people who are um, learning. Uh, I, I love that there's 215, 16, 17, how many episodes there are now. And I have just downloaded all that I have ever absorbed and learned and I hope that it can share it can help you learn and absorb about the comics industry that I love and am so passionate about like I said earlier in this episode the escape it is all about the escape we love to make the escape together we, we may have our different escape portals you may be Justice League I may be X-Men you may be Avengers you know I may be Fantastic Four whatever it is we do it together, but thank you for putting out such great vibes. One of the ways that you can help us out is leaving a review on all the different platforms. Uh, probably the Apple platform is the one that, that that gets the most run at this at this moment. But when you leave a review and it reaches me, I read it here at the end of every show as I am about to read right now from a good name, E. Uh, <laughs> this is from E. Chick. I don't write the names. I share the names. E. Chick 14. E. Chick 14. She wrote generously. Comic books through the eyes of Rob Liefeld. She generously, um, out of the goodness of her heart, gave us five stars. She says, I discovered this podcast via Cartoonist K. Fabi. It is a cool jaunt for the comic book nostalgic of the 80s, 90s, and today, all told through the eyes of Rob Liefeld, a comic book creator and one of the founders of Image Comics. Many consider a polarizing figure in certain circles. There is no denying his love for the medium. Each episode... Rob gives a passionate exposition, a love letter to the art form 
that is comic books. Give it a go. You will not be disappointed. E-Chick14, I cannot tell you how much that touches me and thank you. Yes, I, I am embracing, I am aware, I am a polarizing guy. Polarizing. Okay, but I like it. It wouldn't have it any other way. I'm polarizing because I've done some stuff right. I've had some success, and one of the biggest successes is this podcast, and it's because of you. You on the other side of this microphone, on the other side of this recording, wherever you're listening to it, while you're driving, while you're jogging, while you're at work. Um, I, I, I get so many shares from all you guys. Thank you so much for joining in. I so enjoy rocking this microphone with you guys. You guys know that you can catch me on social media. On Twitter, I am at Robert Liefeld, the whole name, R-O-B-E-R-T-L-I-E-F-E-L-D. I have a blue check that tells you it's really me and not a phony. On Instagram, I am at Rob Liefeld, R-O-B-L-I-E-F-E-L-D. Instagram's a little more my personal life mixed in with my comic book life. I, I kind of share the whole thing. It's all one giant <laughs> social media diary. That's what this is, Twitter, Instagram, uh, my the podcast, my Facebook so check me out on Instagram at Rob Liefeld on Twitter at Robert Liefeld. Both have the the blue check will tell you it's really me uh, and not some phony baloney that is trying to uh, deceive you. This podcast has a page on Facebook, Observations with Rob Liefeld. Look for it, find it. Uh, give me a like, give me a comment. I'll find you. I'll, I'll hit you back. More importantly, we have an expansive community in Rob Liefeld and Extreme Group. That is the name of my group on Facebook. And we are just adding new people left and right all the time. Myself or an administrator named Terry Sala, S-A-L-A, will be the, the 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 two parties that click you through when you submit the membership like we all do at any groups that we join all, all over Facebook. But for our group, it's Terry and myself. That's how you'll know. You'll find that you have found the right group. Rob Liefeld and Extreme Group. My entire career is under a microscope. We can discuss all of it all the DC work, all the, the the Marvel work, and we discuss the characters that I've covered. So it's beyond me, and it just, uh, it's a really fun, uh, all-encompassing comic book group. Rob Liefeld, an extreme group, hit that uh, submission, submit to be, be approved, and we'll get you through. Look for you on the other side. In the meantime, I am on twice a week on this awesome app called Whatnot. Whatnot. It is an incredible comic book collectibles site, live stream. I'm on it twice a week. I share signed Funko Pops, signed comic books, signed exclusives, signed toys, action figures, uh, uh, Hot Wheels. We're doing it all. We are having such a good time. So many of you who listen have said that it feels like an extension of this podcast because I am literally talking to you for several hours depending on how um, how we're rocking the vibes on each of the different live stream. So check me out on whatnot, get the app, sign up. So many cool things. I mean, clothes, apparel, toys, comics, it's all covered on whatnot. Give it a shot. Find me. I'm at Rob Liefeld on whatnot. At the end of, at the end of each and every episode, I encourage you to get out and have some fun. Uh, read a great comic book, a great novel. My wife reads novels. She reads, she reads, she reads like 20 books a year. She burns through them. Uh, the, the historical fiction, uh, you know, mystery, uh, biographies, so, so much. And, and she just gets lost. That's her escape. Whatever your escape is, get there. Comics, streaming, movies, find it, get it, get a big bowl of, uh, ice cream. Last night when I watched house of dragon, I was watching it with a hor- <laughs> horchata churro ice cream that has to be tasted to believe horchata churro. You betcha. I live in that cinnamon world. It's so delicious and it felt good. That was my, that was my, you know, 
my little reward for myself. I'm watching kick-ass, high-end, great production value, exciting character TV, and I'm washing it down with some horchata churro ice cream, okay? Do your version of that. Do your version of, of whatever that is. A great book, a great show. Have I watched Top Gun Maverick four more times since I bought it on iTunes? I have. I escape all the time, guys. It's where I get my juice. You got to, these last couple years, we're still kind of recovering from all the craziness. I'm, I'm, I'm thankful that this podcast was born out of the loneliness of that pandemic, but boy, are we still shaking it off and, and just do it with, with, uh, with the escape of, of, of the, the indulgences. Feel free to indulge and, and enjoy yourself with, with a slice of pizza, a great drink, soda, margarita, beer, whatever's your pleasure. And uh, just kick back, get your feet up, recline, relax. You need it. Trust me. You got to You got to unplug. You got to You got to You got to make your escape. So that is my encouragement to you because your emotional self, your your physical self, your mental self, and your spiritual self must be fed, and they have to have inspiration in order to be fed. And I am encouraging you to do that. This is the end of the show. I am about to sign off. I hope that you circle back and meet me again. Because I will be here and we will absolutely, most certainly talk again real soon.